I've sat alone in this room before, hours and hours on end. I know this delusional wish the door would open to reveal a friend. I know this solitude, I know this kind of cold, but I had faith in what the stories told of true love. How I'd find true love. And here I am in this room again, just as lost and small. Lonely girl with a desperate heart is who I am. After all, there's no escaping her. But now the dream is gone because I spent a lifetime counting on true love. True. And dove head first into his. Turns out you can't find love if you don't know what it is. And now it's clear. Hello and welcome to Broadway Videos. This week on Broadway for Sunday, May 6th, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and in many other places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, this Tuesday, did you guys get up early and uh, watch a little telly? <laughs> I stayed in bed. <laughs> they were still going to be. The, they were still going to be the same no matter what they were. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so. I did watch the portion that was on CBS uh, TV, the major, the quote unquote major award nominations, and yeah, yeah, I was upset at some of the mispronunciations. But on the yeah, other I hand, heard about that. right? <laughs> on the other hand, you know, particularly Hammerstein instead of Stein, yeah. but we've we've all been guilty of it. It's just one would hope in a in a high high profile situation like that that um, that people would be helped to the correct pronunciation. But uh, anyway. Yeah, I didn't really uh, blame Leslie Odom Jr. and Catherine McPhee as much as I blame the producers. Mm. That's That sort of stuff should have been worked out ahead of time. I mean, I, there I are... wouldn't be surprised if it was worked out ahead of time. It's hard to remember. It just yeah. is. Sure. If you don't, if you don't know the words, even if you've been uh, told, um, I'll, I'll be, I'll fess up and say I made that mistake um, when I uh, was emceeing the Drama Desk Awards, um, and um, at that time, Jason Daniel Lee wasn't yeah. uh, famous, and uh, he was in Floyd Collins. They were doing a number for it, and um, I was told Jason Daniel Lee, Jason Daniel Lee, and of course I said Jason Danielli when the time came. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's entirely possible that was the story with them too. You know, they they were briefed, and yet the heat of the moment, and um, y you forget. 
Yes, and also if you've learned it wrong, uh, then it's really hard to to change okay. it. And and some people have come forward to say that you know that they always thought it was Hammerstein. <laughs> you know, maybe their parents their parents said that or whatever. So, uh, but anyway, it's that's for the record. It's Hammerstein. <laughs> well, we um, haven't explicitly said it, but Tuesday was the 2018 Tony Award nominations, and we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. It is the kickoff, the unofficial official kickoff of the uh, awards season for the Broadway community, and um, and we're on the treadmill until uh, June the 10th. You know, some might even say the morning of June 11th. <laughs> um, when uh, the Tony Awards will pre- be presented at Radio City Music Hall. Then the hosts are going to be Sarah Bareilles and Josh Groban. What do you think about the the hosting duties being split between these two? They'll do anything to get people to watch. And um, as a result, they really believe that people who are not particularly interested in Broadway will tune in because, indeed, these people are famous in their own world. I can tell you right now that if Country Music Awards brought in Bernadette Peters and Patti Lapone, I wouldn't watch the show. So I don't think it works. I don't think it works. But uh, anyway, um, let them try. We may hear a few other mispronunciations as a result of that. Or will they actually have like almost a school session to teach them all the names so that there won't be that uh, embarrassment this time around? Well, although although neither Sarah Bareilles nor Josh Groban made their names in the theater, they, they do seem – uh, committed to it now, at least in terms of uh, the incredible commitment that Josh had to Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, and Sarah through her show Waitress, in which not only did she uh, co-write it, but she's had a, she has appeared in the role on Broadway. Then also she had recently uh, she was Mary Magdalene in Jesus Christ Stup- Superstar live on TV. So. Uh, and so, also, for that matter, while we're at it, uh, doesn't you have a song on SpongeBob as well? Oh yeah, oh right, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. So uh, I mean, I I don't have a problem in that sense. They they really, even if they haven't spent their lives in the theater, they do seem really committed to it now. And it's it's great to bring uh, people from other areas of of showbiz into the fold, especially if they do good work. And in and in the case of both of these uh, people, I think they have so. Yes. Um, so Sarah Burles, Josh Groban, as Peter mentioned, uh, widely considered to be people that were chosen to bring in new viewers to uh, the Tony Awards on CBS. Um, and also they seem to have done another move, which is uh, uh, award a uh, special Tony Award to Bruce Springsteen. Right. Uh, which, uh, you know, okay. Um, I'm surprised that they maybe they did ask him to host. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, he's star, starring on Broadway uh, right now. <laughs> that's an impossibility at all. Apropos of uh, what Peter has said, though, I, I think that past ratings have proven uh, or indicated that it doesn't really matter what types of celebs from other areas are brought in for the awards. That doesn't significantly affect the the ratings. But it seems like, uh, if, I, if I'm correct, I believe the year that Hamilton was up, uh, the ratings were also up because that show became such a phenomenon in, in itself. So... Um, for, you know, take that for what, what it's worth. But the, the, I think that was a much bigger factor than any celebrity, uh, you know, 
from the wor- world of sports or rock music or or wherever that have appeared on the Tony Awards. Uh, and uh, other people have talked about the relationship between the Tony Awards and CBS and that uh, – uh, I don't think that CBS has explicitly said it, but they lose money on the Tony Awards uh, and the presentation of the Tony Awards, uh, and that the Tony Awards have been have been protected by Les Moonves, the uh, mm-hmm. uh, the top man at uh, right. at CBS, who is uh, scheduled to retire. So yeah, I know it's going to be very interesting to see what happens there. I won't. Rest of cable is uh, is next on the line, but um, Les, um, who I met um, once, uh, I yeah, I remember we went to see the taping of Pearly, uh, oh. uh, somewhere in the Bronx. It's uh, some college. I don't remember what Layman Layman College, um, and uh, he had produced an off Broadway musical. It has a wonderful score if you can track down the CD called it's called Festival. Terrific music, um, a rock musical. Um, very, very good music, though. And um, I do believe that uh, he was really planning to be a producer. That that one didn't take off, and there, there may have been others. I don't know. But um, he did uh, switch gears, and, and it was a blessing in disguise uh, for the theater because you're right. I don't think these things would have been on CBS without less. Hmm. So with all that said about the Tony Awards uh, coming up, let's talk about the actual nominations themselves. Uh, we have, um, let's start off with the best book of a musical where they had, uh, nominations where the bands visit frozen mean girls and SpongeBob SquarePants, the musical, uh, did you guys think that these were the best, best books to Uh uh, nominate? Well, they're slim pickings. That's what it came down yeah. to. Boy, people um, uh, connect with the Bronx Tale. Not that it has done badly. Or Bandstand, or uh, certainly Groundhog Day, uh, must be so upset because they would have done so much better this year had they just uh, waited. I mean, not that you're supposed to wait. I remember when Big waited because it didn't think it could beat Sunset Boulevard, and then along came Rent. Um, Mm. And I I, I believe Big could have beaten Sunset Boulevard because people would have said, oh, what a charming American musical, as opposed to, oh, what a dinosaur when it was finally produced. But, you know, you never know. I mean, that's, that's part of the crap game, of course. But... There must be um, a lot of licking of wounds in the fact that I think Groundhog Day <laughs> would have uh, done extraordinarily well this year. And um, I do believe that Bronx Tale would have done well, too. Not that Bronx Tale is particularly needed. It. It's wonderful how it's um, hung on. Um, not hung on. It's flourished, let's face it. And um, it, it won't be, you know, it's been there a year and a half now. And that's that's pretty good for a show that didn't get raves. Um, it's found its audience. And it would have found the awards if indeed it had opened. Uh, this season instead of last. War Paint is another one we can add to that list of things <laughs> that might have done better with better timing. Sure, sure. That, uh, there's always so many examples of that. Of it's, course, of course. Know. But this year especially, because yes. um, it wasn't a case that um, this year the four musicals that were nominated uh, really came in with um, either great audience appreciation or rave reviews. And uh, you might say, wait, 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 The Band's Visit. Sure. But let's face it, The Band's Visit has not done the business commensurate with those reviews. It just has not. And so I think a lot of people just don't like that type of Broadway musical that's small, that's serious, uh, Mm -hmm. that has a funky score. 
and uh, I think they're suffering for that, uh, why it's not a hot ticket. And it's not. I'm sorry to say it's not. But in a way, I'm glad I'm saying it because if anybody out there thinks, oh, I could never get a ticket to the band's visit with those reviews, well, yes, you can. Um, and um, what's really interesting, too, of course, is what we hear about um, Frozen uh, suddenly having tickets available, especially mm. through scalpers. Um, I, I, it's funny to think of Frozen as really, to me, um, and I'm not saying I'm right about this, but I think of the four nominees, I really believe that Frozen has the least chance of winning. Um, I, but that will make me right. But um, Mean Girls and SpongeBob have real adherence, where Frozen seems to have people who are disappointed. The fact that it only was nominated for three awards, and yet if you pass by the St. James now, you, um, the, the electronic marquee is now able to accommodate <laughs> yeah. you know, best musical, best book, best score, you know, and, um, and leaves it at that because that's what I would have never predicted, never predicted that it would have won only three nominations. Never. And as far as specifically best book of a musical, I would not include that among the nominations it should have received. I, I just think that uh, the show is expanded and overstuffed in a way that's really not very effective. So I don't I don't think that the book is is an element of it that would necessarily deserve to be praised and awarded. Uh, there are other aspects of it that. Uh, certainly might be, but that's, uh, in my opinion, how I feel. Well, I was astonished it didn't get a nomination for Best Lighting because the lighting uh, does yeah. the heavy lifting in Frozen. Uh, the sets, um, as I mentioned before, seem like a Schubert operetta, but um, the lighting does the heavy lifting, and I would have thought it would have gotten a nod uh, that Natasha Cass would have been recognized for that, so I was very surprised to see that. But yeah, in terms of book, I've I mentioned this, I'm sure, before. It's very hard when you've had a cartoon that is well-known and the same dialogue is not put in real people's mouths. It sounds a little spurious, especially when there are anachronisms in the way that people speak. So you may say the same as SpongeBob SquarePants. Isn't that based on a cartoon? Yeah, but see, Frozen was really based on a specific property. Well, SpongeBob was based on a number of properties. And I don't think people knew the SpongeBob series as well as people knew the Frozen movie. So I think that's a problem. But I wouldn't bet against um, <laughs> SpongeBob winning everything because it's really been such a surprise. And I think when you add up the Auto Critics Circle nomination, the Drama Desk nominations, I have a feeling that SpongeBob won more nominations than anybody else. Hmm. Uh, let me see. I have a list here. I have uh, Tony nominations by production. Mean Girls, 12. SpongeBob, 12. Oh, Angels, right. Angels in America, 11. Bands Visit, 11. Rogers and Hammerstein, Cinderella, uh, Carousel. Cinderella. <laughs> Eleven. You've been uh, reading that that Rogers and Hammerstein book. That's why it's in your exactly, mind. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Harry Harry Potter and the Cursed Child parts one and two. Ten. My Fair Lady. Ten. Eugene O'Neill's The Iceman Cometh. Eight. Once on This Island. Eight. Edward Albee's Three Tall Women. Six. Farinelli and the King. Five. Travesties. Four. Frozen. Three. Lobby Hero. Three. The Children. Two. Junk. Two. Summer, the Donna Summer Musical, two. Children of a Lesser God, one. Latin History for Morons, one. Meteor Shower, one. 1984, one. And St. Joan, one. So uh, I think they was uh, pretty shocking that Mean Girls and SpongeBob led the, uh, led the pack there. And we had a lot of categories that were fleshed out beyond the normal four slots. Uh, right, that's to five true. And e to five and even six slots in one, 
one uh, situation. We'll talk about that in a second. So let's move on to another category. Let's see what's next here in the list rundown. Um, best original score uh, written for the theater, which is the important caveat here. <laughs> Led by Angels in America, yeah. uh, Frozen, Mean Girls, SpongeBob SquarePants, uh, and the band's surprise, visit. Uh, oh, the I skipped visit. that one. Then the band's visit. Exactly. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't. I don't think they'll skip it though. I think this is <laughs> yeah. David Yaz. This is David Yazbek's year, having yeah. uh, been nominated for three scores before, none of which won. All of which were worthy, though I don't think anybody uh, realized Blue Moon on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown was worthy at the time because the production was so chaotic. Uh, but uh, certainly, uh, I, I've said this before, I'm sure, but uh, of all the times I've worked at Tony Press Room, you know, there are these hard-bitten journalists who've seen it all, done it all, and um, nothing surprises them even when there's an upset. But I tell you, when <laughs> Lily Tomlin said, and the winner of Best Score is... Mel Brooks for the producers. That room went ooh because <laughs> we really thought David Yazbek was going to win that one. That that was going to be the very significant, juicy, full of meat bone throw to the uh, to the uh, sorry <laughs> to uh, the full Monty. Uh, we really thought that was going to happen because it was such a good score, and yes. you do, you do want somebody to walk away with something when it's a worthy show. And certainly, the full Monty had gotten good reviews and ran a, a decent amount of time and. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because I was I was reading the Rogers and Hammerstein new book, Something Wonderful, yesterday, and um, they were talking about a show running a disappointing 108 performances. And I guess today people say it ran a disappointing 700 performances because shows <laughs> are supposed to run so much longer. Um, I'm waiting for that to happen. Uh, what will that peak at, the disappointment? But anyway, um, he could have won that year. And I think in retrospect, a lot of people say, you know, that full bungee score really really was better than the producers. I think that's happened. And Dirty Rotten Scoundrels lost to Light in the Piazza, and that was uh, nobody's going to really dispute that one in the same way. But still, it was sad to have uh, such a terrific score as Dirty Rotten Scoundrels come away without that award. So um, I do believe this will be David Yazbek's year, but considering – yeah. and by the way, think about it. I mean, if, if they give it to uh, – to uh, SpongeBob, well, next year the Tonys may have to be held at a grammar school auditorium because they have to give out so many awards, like 16 of them, because that costs money. So, um, so I don't think that'll happen either. The thing about the uh, Full Monty is that I, I think that that vote changed the the destiny of Full Monty in subsequent markets. I mean, we yeah. see we see lots and lots of uh, the producers' uh, productions in in regional community theaters and hardly ever do we see a full Monty. And I think that the full Monty is probably a better show, uh, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Oh yes. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it was and, hard to have people say that at the time though. Yeah, yeah. Very hard. Yeah. Well, the thing about the, the producers was it was so, it was so celebrity rage on fire, Nathan and Matthew, sure. uh, and uh, Mel Brooks was out there pressing the flesh as much as he could, you know, um, 
that I think that it was, they, it, it was a more a, famous title for, yeah. for Broadway, an iconic title. We all knew what the producers was the Full Monty, which was a surprise movie hit. Granted, still didn't have uh, the legacy of the movie of the producers, so there was some of that too. And it, uh, <laughs> I remember during the opening number of the producers, people were clapping in unison. I mean, and this was at a preview, so I mean, the word was out that this was going to be a smash. So what could you do? But anyway, um, yeah, I, I do believe David Yazbek will be awarded this year and uh, I'm looking forward to his acceptance speech because he's a wild and crazy guy yes I also I think and hope that it will be David's year he he's really one of our greatest and he deserves it and also it is the best score of the year as far in in my opinion uh, I didn't really focus to be honest on the music in Angels in America so much uh, I'm sure it's fine I think that Jeff Richmond and Nell Benjamin really did a pretty good job overall with Mean Girls and musicalizing a story that um, maybe was not desperate for musicalization um and frozen i the the new songs i felt really ranged from mediocre to less than uh for the most part so i wouldn't uh, count on that uh SpongeBob, I, I really did enjoy the, all of those songs by all of those people. <laughs> uh, and uh, as I mentioned, and some other people agree with me, for whatever reason, it didn't really seem like a, so much of a hodgepodge. There, there, there actually seemed to be some cohesion to the score, which you, one might not would have uh, expected considering how many different people had their hands in, in, in that so, uh, but that show I, I am told uh, is is not doing so well. So I wonder how long it'll be around. And the band's visit. Um, one thing about that is that it's easily it's more easily producible than a lot of these other shows. Uh, although, although on on another level, I suppose it's not if you're going to try to cast it um, with people of the nationality or and or ethnicity that. Uh, these characters are supposed to be. That will be an interesting thing to see what happens when this show goes out into the, uh, well, the regional, but more so into the community and, you know, high school and college theater worlds. So um, just a quick mention here. Uh, I When Matt Tamanini and I talked about this on The Daily Show about um, the best original score, musical lyrics written for the theater, I said that I was surprised that Angels America was in this category and Harry Potter was not uh, because I remember mm-hmm. the Harry Potter music. I don't remember the Angels in America music. Yeah. Um, and then Matt told me that he, I think that Matt said that uh, Harry Potter's music was not eligible because oh. there was some, some loophole yeah. that it wasn't written for the theater. I see. I see. Uh, okay. So anyway. Interesting. Yeah. Um, best performance by a leading Best performance by an actor in a leading role in a play. Andrew Garfield, Angels in America, Tom Hollander, Travesties, Jamie Parker, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, Parts 1 and 2, Mark Rylance, Farinelli and the King, Denzel Washington, Eugene O'Neill's The Iceman Cometh. So, Peter, what say you? Tough category. Um, I thought Mark Rylance was wonderful, but he's received his awards and the show is closed, so I don't think it's going to be he. What it really comes down to is how much of a a juggernaut Harry Potter is going to be. 
so it could be Jamie Parker simply because he's playing uh, Harry Potter, and there's a, <laughs> that might be enough to again uh, the Sarah Bareilles, Josh Groban factor. You know, the idea of, of wanting to things that people know, uh, the names that are familiar, and uh, the, there's Denzel Washington helping that uh, along as well. The two that really knocked me out this year were Andrew Garfield, especially when I went to the Easter Bonnet competition. Um, did you guys go to that? I forget. I missed it. Well, anyway, there he comes out and he has this you know sterling British accent uh, that would please Professor Higgins, I assure you. And uh, you know, and of course, you don't get a trace of it at all uh, when you see Angels in America. It's amazing to me how British actors do the American accents so well. Amazing to me. So um, I'm fine with Andrew Garfield getting it, who, after all, um, has a bit of a movie reputation of his own as well. And uh, Tom Hollander was wonderful in Travesties. I, I just believe that that is not such a high profile show. So um, I, I'm very glad for Andrew Garfield, and I won't be surprised if uh, he won't be on the stage. Um, I think he'll um, wind up uh, being the victor, but we shall see. We're not really talking about predictions as much as reactions, are we? Okay, I'll keep the reactions. Okay, I'm glad he's in there. <laughs> well, it certainly is a Brit-heavy category because we have Mark Rylance, Jamie Parker, Tom Hollander, and then uh, I, I guess Andrew Garfield would be described as half-Brit. In fact, I think that's how he's uh, listed, um, you know, if you look him up. Because he was born in uh, America, Los Angeles, I believe, um, and and I guess uh, he's worked here, and, and one of his parents is American, so that might help explain the perfect American accent. Um, I thought. He was really wonderful in Angels in America. I I did think he did a lot of uh, screaming and a lot of high pitched screaming, especially uh, in Act Two, and that, and that that was uh, a little surprising to me to the, the extent and degree to which he did it. Uh, but it's uh, really nice to have fairly big fairly big movie stars like that come to Broadway and and be good. Uh, uh, you know, I think we all agree that when they when they do Broadway and they can't cut it, that's not good for anyone and gets kind of embarrassing. Uh, but when they can, it, uh, it's it's a really good thing. And on that note, I only saw uh, I only got to see the Iceman Comet a couple of nights ago. I had to delay seeing it. And I was very impressed with Denzel Washington's performance as Hickey in the past in um plays such as Fences and A Raisin in the Sun, I always felt that oh, he... Julius Caesar. Uh, and, and Julius Caesar, yeah. But, uh, but uh, in those two particularly, I always felt that he was excellent throughout most of them, but then there would be moments in the, those plays where they required a real power and depth of feeling, and I felt he came up wanting. But in this uh, case, in the Iceman Comet, I thought he did a an excellent job with Hickey's final monologue. And uh, at the performance I saw, he he seemed to be pretty much word perfect. There was no stumbling or hesitation or anything like that, as apparently there had been in early performances. So, um, so bravo to him for that. And as to who will get the award, I can't guess, but mm. um, it might Possibly. <laughs> uh, I'm laughing, by, I'm laughing, Michael, because you always say I'm terrible at the predictions. You know, so. I am. I am. So, <laughs> so maybe I should just stop there. Go. That's on. right. <laughs> All right. The best performance by an actress in a leading role in a play: Glenda Jackson, Edward Albee's Three Tall Women, Condola Rashad, Saint Joan. Uh, 
Lauren Ridloff, uh, Children of a Lesser God, and Amy Schumer, Meteor Shower. See, now, uh, <laughs> I think Amy Schumer's being in there is another one of these, uh, let's get the audience ploys more than anything else. I don't recall her reviews being that uh, extraordinary. To me, she seemed very amateurish compared to the other pros on the stage. Um, God love her for wanting to come to Broadway and try it, but still. Uh, I would have certainly gone for some of the women in Time in the Conways, but I'm sure that was long forgotten by that point in time. Uh, yeah, sure. You know, I... Uh, uh, it got no uh, nominations, did it? Um, it certainly didn't get any um, uh, acting. Nom- I don't think it got anything at all. But anyway, um, uh, you know, Charlotte Perry, I thought was awfully good in that, and um, and and Brooke Bloom um, as well, and even Anna Baryshnikov. Now maybe those are supporting roles, but still. Um, that was one that came to mind as uh, as being certainly having superior uh, people to um, a- Amy Schumer. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> um, but um, nobody can argue with Glenda Jackson, and um, she she truly is magnificent beyond belief. I think the real surprise was Condoleezza Rashad got in there because uh, indeed her reviews were not so hot, and um, so uh, but. It was a tough year for plays, even with the revivals. And you're not going to get anybody out of the Iceman Cometh in this category, to say the least. So um, this is an is-what-it-is category. I I always say I would love to see the number of votes people get. We see it with politicians. You know, wouldn't it be something? Uh, Because I imagine that Lauren Ridloff would finish second to Glenda Jackson uh, with those other two people in the category. Interesting. Uh, Peter, have you ever interviewed uh, Glenda Jackson? No, because um, she's been away for so long, uh, so very, very long, uh, of course, uh, dealing with politics in England. So no, no, never uh, uh, ran into her at all. It it seems as though in the last uh, couple of weeks that there's been a number of stories about how difficult she is to interview. <laughs> yeah, because... Because she doesn't suffer fools gladly, you mean that type of thing? Yes, and just I, I very guess, honest, yeah. very, very yeah. plain spoken. And uh huh. Oh, I would expect <laughs> her to be. I would definitely expect her to be, and that's a compliment. Absolutely. I am going to have to disagree with Peter about Amy Schumer. I think it was excellent comic acting, and apparently she does have a, a pass as a stand up. I, I have no um, neg- negative comments about her acting in that show. Uh, the, the writing of it is another matter. Uh, but, and actually, the only person I felt who seemed that he didn't come up to the standards of the others was Keegan Michael Key as Gerald. I, I, I don't know. He just seemed like he wasn't as invested uh, in the character. Uh, so for whatever that's worth, uh, but uh, Lauren Ridloff is is excellent in Children of a Lesser God. I feel like the show doesn't have a very high profile. Uh, it's you know it's something has to be uh, kind of le- left in the in the dust and things. Uh, there, there's never enough room for for everything, and uh, I, I think that show uh, it has not gone over that well in this revival uh, Condola Rashad I um, was very disappointed in her first scene in St. Joan which I just saw last week I didn't think she had the requisite fire uh, in that in that first scene only but I think I suppose she was trying to give herself some place to go and after that I thought she she really uh, really stepped up to the plate and, and just 
was riveting on stage and in that very very long play she she helped keep interest in it and glenda jackson i'm just uh, so thrilled i have not I had only seen her on stage once before, years and years ago in Macbeth, and I'm so glad she's back uh, in a role that that seems to suit her so perfectly. Um, So, uh, you know, uh, congratulations to whoever arranged for her to be in it. Uh, I don't I'm I'm not sure how the you know, exactly how the the process went, uh, the casting process of her or the other uh, two ladies, Laurie Metcalf and Alison Pill. But they but. I'm glad it turned out the way it did. All right. Uh, best performance by an actor in a leading role in a musical. We have uh, Harry Hayden Patton in My Fair Lady, Joshua Henry, Rogers and Hammerstein's Carousel, Tony Shalhoub, The Band's Music, Ethan Slater, SpongeBob SquarePants, The Musicals. So, Peter. <laughs> well, um, I, I wonder if Ethan Slater has a chance. Everybody adores him, um, and it's a performance that uh, certainly uh, taxes a voice, I would imagine, given the fact that uh, he has to sound like he's both on – well, he's on helium, but he's not on Ritalin. So I, 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 this is a beloved performance suddenly, and um, I don't think it's impossible that he can pull off a type of an upset. Tony Shalhoub, of course, um, the band's visit is uh, giving us a, a wonderfully understated yet powerful performance. It, that isn't an oxymoron, really. If you saw him, uh, you would feel, I think, much the same. But um, – uh, again, God bless revivals because what would this category be like if indeed Carousel and My Fair Lady had not been produced? Mm. And um, But I think the race is really between Ethan Slater and Tony Shalhoub. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, Ethan Slater, he really is a – he's just a bundle of talent and energy on that stage. It's amazing. Uh it has to be seen. Uh, it's so impressive. And uh been seeing a lot of TV commercials for all of these shows, and I was reminded by how much energy he has. And he, he really does have that quality that makes the audience want to love him, uh, as Peter said, which is so important in that character. Uh, Tony Shalhoub gives a superb, very quiet and uh, measured and very intelligent performance in the band's visit. He he is one of our best actors. I, I've seen him in so many things, and, and this role is perfect for him. So I think it might very well be him. Joshua Henry, I have to say, I was so happy uh, to hear someone who is able to sing the role as it was conceived uh, compared to the last uh, Broadway revival, the one at Lincoln Center, which that production uh, certainly has many, many people who love it. And I I would say on the whole, it's far better than this one. But uh, yeah, when Joshua Henry got to the the climaxes in If I Loved You and in the soliloquy, it was absolutely thrilling. Uh, So I appreciate him very much for that and i uh, as far as the acting i don't know i i thought i i just have so many problems with the direction of this show and the whole concept of it and i i felt like um that maybe uh his performance was hampered somewhat over concerns about the uh 
the Me Too, the hashtag Me Too movement uh, and how Carousel fits in with with that. Uh, It seems to me like a lot of people who were involved in this show were nervous about that. And and I suppose maybe exacerbated by the uh, colorblind casting uh, situation. So I I didn't think that the acting performance bowled me over, but singing wise, that was really amazing. And uh, I have not seen My Fair Lady yet, so I can't weigh in on. on oh, really? Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm going on Thursday. Uh, I haven't lost any sleep over this, but given that many categories have five nominations, I don't think it would have been the end of the world if Paul Alexander Nolan from Escape to Margaritaville got in there as uh, as a nomination. Um, I think he does a very nice job as Tully, <laughs> yes. uh, the slacker who um, turns out to be uh, successful in the real world. But uh, – it, it would have been uh, a nice thing to do um, and uh, would have given Escape to Margarita, which is everybody knows who's listening, uh, got nothing uh, at all. Uh, it would have been you know, nice to throw them that bone. And, um, and as I say, I think, he's, I think he's everything in the part that one could want anybody to be. So uh, I yes. think fine. And in, in a year like this, yeah, uh, why not? To have Ethan Slater uh, in his Broadway debut – uh, nominated for the leading role in a musical um, it is kind of shocking. Matt Tamanini and I spent about an hour with Ethan uh, talking about a month ago, and I'll link to that in the show notes if you want to listen to that. We talk about Ethan's uh, history with the show and how he got to where he is with SpongeBob. He's been working with SpongeBob for, uh, if I recall correctly, five or seven years. Uh, on wow. this already they they pulled him out of uh, another audition and said hey we sort of have this thing that we're thinking about doing and he started reading spongebob so many years ago when he was uh, <laughs> st- still a junior i think in college or something and seven years later and his voice still hasn't changed yeah. uh, that's surprising to me okay <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, best performance by an actress in a leading role in a musical. Put your seatbelts on. We have a big category here. <laughs> Lauren Ambrose from My Fair Lady, Haley Kilgore, Once in This Island, LaShawn's Summer, The Donna Summer Musical, Katrina Lenk, The Band's Visit, Taylor Latterman, Mean Girls, and Jesse Mueller, Rodgers and Hammerstein's Carousel. I almost said Cinderella again. I almost. <laughs> I should read these things. But All you right. didn't say Hammerstein. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good. I think I'm thinking about. Cinderella because I'm so focused on not making the Hammerstein mistake. You know? uh, I see. <laughs> so I see. Uh, well, I'm, I'm delighted LaShawn's got in there uh, because I think she really is the glue. Uh, well, the straw that stirs the drink and the glue that keeps the uh, show together. So I was very happy to see that. She's not going to win, but uh, I'm very happy to see that. Um, it, it, it all depends on what uh, happens with the band's visit. This is going to be such a tough thing for the band's visit because – um, it's not the type of show that brings in um, tourists, and it's not the type of show that's going to play as big on the road as SpongeBob or Mean Girls. So uh, they love to say winner of X Tony Awards, and um, giving one to the band's visit here is going to uh, be one that uh, could very well help the band's visit cause in um, getting around uh, for the rest of the country because – it's not as important uh, for Carousel or My Fair Lady to uh, to have that in in terms of touring because the the brand name of those shows is 
very much established. So um, I, you know, I, I wonder if Lauren Ambrose can win. Um, I, I don't think it's possible she can, but um, I, I do f- feel very good about this category um, and um, thinking that um, they made the right decision by going to six for this category. Now, is it true that the reason it's six because there was a tie and they decided not to break it? I've heard that rumor. So what I uh, had read, I think Michael Dale had uh, posted how it ended up at six was that the the voting was so tight that it went to a fifth from the fourth fourth to the fifth, and the fifth was tied, so they went to six. Uh, I'm glad. You know, I, th- I think it's um, <clears throat> a good decision <clears throat> considering the um, the quality. I I, I think. Um, all these uh, women are quite, quite accomplished in what they're doing. So um, I have no problem with any of them. And um, I'm glad it was expanded. I, I'm sorry other categories weren't. Yeah, what I, what I started to say was a separate issue that apparently they said if there were nine or more eligible people, then there could be as uh, many as five nominees rather six. than four. But, that, but here we have six, so obviously something else was going on. And uh, – yeah, I, I guess I would say what I said about Carousel earlier applies to Jesse Mueller. In, in my opinion, I have loved her in everything she's done before this, but I don't think she makes much of an impression at all in, in Rodgers and Hammerstein's Carousel. Uh, Haley Kilgore is, is very wonderful in What's on This Island, and I'm glad that show got uh, – that she got – the attention and that show is getting some attention. I have not seen My Fair Lady, so I can't comment on Lauren Ambrose, although it seems to me from what I'm hearing that it's a somewhat controversial performance. And uh, Taylor Louderman uh, is for Mean Girls. It's uh, perhaps not surprising that the um, that the Mean Girls are the ones <laughs> who get the, uh, the noms uh, because the audiences really love to see people uh be uh you know kind of devious and 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 mean and i think that's part of what happened there and she is terrific in it maybe um it could also be that erica henningson uh uh, to me is not giving a star performance Um, okay well well, again you don't have to agree but um I, i don't think she's galvanizing i don't think she has the um dominant presence that uh you can't take your eyes off her and of course, yes, you will always hear that it's more fun to play a villain. Um, I don't, I've never heard an actor um, argue otherwise. But I do believe it was the fact that um, Erica Henningsen just could not uh, come out and dominate that show that um, made her not in that category. Because she is really the lead in that, in that show, and Taylor Lauderman is not the lead in that show. Yeah, you said that before, and I, I see what you mean. I think that the character of Katie uh, comes across better in the film, and, and that might be partly because of the way the character is written. I'm not sure if the uh, writing of the character for the musical uh, is maybe as good as the writing for the other characters. But, um, you know, whatever. It's hard oh. to say. LaChance, uh, again, I, I love her. I don't think there's anything in, in certainly not in the book of Summer that allows her uh, to show, uh, you know, her acting ability. Uh, she does a, a wonderful job with the songs, uh, even though, as I mentioned in the past, her, her the timbre of her voice is very different from Donna Summer for whatever that's worth. And uh, some people have said to me, well, that 
sh- that shouldn't matter, you know, and, and you, you, she shouldn't have to do an imitation. And I said, well, no, but um, in in Beautiful, the Carol King musical, Jesse Mueller, I, I think, did a wonderful job of evoking the voice of Carol King without doing a flat out imitation. So uh, that that worked better for me. Uh, but to end up, I think Katrina Lenk will and should get the award for the band's visit. She's um, it, again, like like Tony Shalhoub, it's a very subtle but beautiful performance in such a well-written show that that really allows actors to um, to relate to each other and 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 it allows the audience to see their relationship grow in a beautiful way. And I can't say enough good about that show. So I hope it does very very well at the Tonys overall. All right. Um... This seems to be a trend that is happening on Broadway, so I think that we'll employ it here. Um, Harry Potter came in two parts. Angels in America came in two parts. And our discussion of this is going to come in two parts. So next week we'll continue our discussion of the Tony Award nominations. You think I use that well? Yeah, I'm very (laughs) in All right, so let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, a, a quick few reviews. Peter, you got over to Classic Stage Company to see Summer and Smoke. Uh, tell us what you thought. It's a very controversial production because it's one that's not realistic at all. Uh, I don't think that's a, a liability with Tennessee Williams plays whatsoever. Um, but my point is that um, don't look for any props. When people drink from glasses, they're miming it, uh, that type of thing. So, uh, But the real reason to see this production is one of our finest actresses doing a phenomenal job with Alma Weinmuller, uh, and that's Marin Island. Terrific job, top-notch beyond belief, and uh, subtle when she has to be, dynamic when she has to be. If you don't know the character, she's uh, one who's fast-becoming um, and the word is used, spinster. Um, it's funny the term old maid is not used, but uh, maybe Tennessee Williams felt that was just too cruel. But, <clears throat> yeah, she is referred to as a spinster late in the show, and she's said uh, to be a spinster by the man with whom she's treme- to whom she's tremendously attracted. And that's Dr. John Buchanan, uh, who is uh, been away for a while, but they were uh, – you get the impression that, they, that she's loved him for all her life. But, boy, you know, she has a father who's uh, real tough when it comes to um, what she should be. And so she's pretty much molded in his image. So um, the one thing that I urge you to do if you see Summer and Smoke – If they say, yeah, we got a seat for you in the center section, right on the aisle, on the uh, right-hand side, meaning right-hand side from our viewpoint, not the actor's viewpoint, do not take it. Do not take it in the second row. Do not take the first three seats in either row, starting from the extreme right-hand side, because Jack Cummings III, who is usually a fine director, has really miscalculated here because... During the show, at least 15 minutes of it, um, they have an easel put up with um, a a drawing on it, uh, a a medical drawing of a man's insides. And much is made of the fact of where's the soul and much is made of the fact of uh, look what's on this chart. Alma, face it, this a man is um, 
uh, he is a, is a body, uh, and you've got to look at a man's body, that type of thing. But good Lord, I mean, I felt so bad for the people who were craning their necks trying to get around that um, easel or s- sliding in their seats hoping to see underneath the easel. Um, it, it, it's just horrifying, and I'm amazed. It stayed up there for so long, and then it came down, and you say, oh, thank God. And then it went up again. Um, so this is a real miscalculation, I beg of you, not to be a uh, victim by this very strange directorial decision. So, um, but um, the cast is pretty good, uh, but uh, uh, Barbara Walsh, who in fact is Jack Cumming III's husband, uh, wife, sorry, um, is Mrs. Weinmiller and does a, a fine, fine, fine job too. And um, in, a, in a role which, of course, means she's going to have to be terribly repressed and under the thumb of her husband. But... Uh, <sighs> <laughs> you're going to really be impressed by Marin Island and you're going to come out um, saying, gee, did I really see anybody else? And um, and in a way, that's too bad because um, you would uh, very much like to um, come away with um, more feeling for Nathan Darrow as um, John Buchanan. He's a TV actor and um, he, he has done some work on stage. He's been Richard III and Bam and certainly um, he's been in Hamlet I don't know if he's played Hamlet regionally, but um, but it's just impossible not to watch Marin Island. And I really do believe you should get there to see this terrific performance. All right. So that is Summer and Smoke. Uh, it's playing through May 25th at a classic stage company. So you have a few weeks to catch up with that as well. Three weeks to catch up with that as well. Uh, Michael, you got over to Birdland where you saw Max von Essen in concert with Billy Stritch uh, on uh, April 30th. So tell us about that. Yes, I would be happy to. It was one of the finest, most professional, most excellent shows of its type that I've ever seen. I recall that uh, I had seen Max do a a, a club act uh, or a one-person show of this type some years ago at Ars Nova. And I remember that that one was really excellent. And I had uh, been hoping to see him do one again, but frankly, he's been too busy uh, getting wonderful roles in in shows on and off Broadway. Uh, So I guess now he had the time to do put an act together again. And and Jim Caruso uh, from Birdland urged him to do so. And he did uh, a wonderful wonderful show on Monday, April 30th at Birdland. Uh, he started with everything old is new again into uh, the I'm old fashioned. And that kind of set the tone for the evening. He, uh, Max has a very classically handsome old style look, uh, especially from profile that makes him really perfect for period, uh, material and shows. Uh, so, and he apparently is drawn to those kinds of songs uh, and has been since an early age. He tells a story about how he got a, a Gershwin songbook from his mother when he was very young and, and that just thrilled him. Um, and he uh, just wrote this show so so smartly and so beautifully uh it it included a lot of uh samples of his broadway stuff on this night of a thousand stars uh from a vita in which he played um magaldi empty chairs and empty tables from les mis uh the the first revival i guess in which he played that role marius um also 
he uh, other Broadway songs where they say it's wonderful for Manny Get Your Gun and a song title song from his show that I don't think he has done, but a part he'd be great for. She loves me. Um, actually, he'd be great as either George or Kodai in that show. So mm-hmm. maybe he'll get two under them. Um, the uh, lot lots of wonderful old songs. I think one of the most recent songs. Uh, in the show was Can't Take My Eyes Off of You from Jersey Boys, um, that uh, f- Four Seasons song. And then he did also sing the theme from The Nanny by Anna Hampton Calloway uh-huh. uh, as, uh, uh, as a sequel to he, – he, he had sung a song that Anne wrote um, music to uh, lyrics by Cole Porter that – uh, had never been set, and so that was the setup for that. And then the uh, uh, Max got a Tony nomination for An American in Paris, and he saved that for the end. That he did a huge medley in which he sang mostly songs he did not sing in the show, um, the all, all the wonderful Gershwin songs that were inserted into it. And then as an encore, he did his big number, Stairway to Paradise. Um, so it was a great evening. The audience was packed with. Uh, friends and colleagues and and just fans uh uh and please keep an eye on the broadway and at the broadway at birdland series which happens on mondays at seven o'clock they have a, a lot of great people there and it's always followed by jim caruso's cast party uh which is an open mic situation so you too uh can sing at birdland if you if you get on the list and if you if you think that you're up to the challenge <laughs> Many people think they're up to the challenge. Many people yeah. crash and burn. <laughs> Billy Stritch was the um, pianist and musical director for Max, and he did a bang-up job. And uh, there were piano, uh, uh, piano, bass, and drums. And then also, um, for a couple of numbers, Max had a, a wonderful a woman on her night off from My Fair Lady's orchestra come and play the cello. So it was it was just so much thought went into this act. It. Uh, it was obvious, and it really showed, and the audience appreciated it greatly. All right. Peter, you went to the Barishnikov Arts Center, the Jerome Robbins Theater on West 37th Street to see 217 boxes of Dr. Henry Anonymous. That sort of sounds like that box show that you and I saw down at New York Theater Workshop. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. It does sound like that, but it's it's completely different. And um, it's about a historical incident about which I knew nothing. And I'll be interested to hear if either one of you guys uh, know about this. But in 1972, a psychiatrist named Dr. John Fryer put on an, a tuxedo not in his own size, it was oversized, and a rubber joke shop mask and became Dr. Henry Anonymous and confronted the American Psychiatric Association with the words, I am a homosexual and I am a psychiatrist. So, um, do you know about this incident at all? I mean, I, I... does no, not sound familiar, no. No. Okay, I mean, it was amazing to me um, that I never heard about this. So Ian Gordon, that's A-I-N, Gordon, wrote and directed a play uh, based on this. And what he did was actually deal with three different people, none of whom were the doctor. Um, one um, 
was Alfred Gross, who was uh, an, an executive secretary to the uh, George Henry Foundation in New York. Uh, he assisted homosexual men in trouble with the law. And uh, Fryer joined these efforts in the mid to late 60s. So uh, we had Alfred Gross there. And uh, we also had Catherine Luter, who she spent 24 years as Fryer's personal secretary uh, starting in 1973, one year after the anonymous speech, and working right up to her death at 91. So, um, she, and uh, then we have Ursel Fryer, Ursel E R C E L, the first name, and that's uh, John Fryer's father, who was born in Kentucky, and uh, where indeed uh, we're in, in 1901. Uh, so he he's of a generation where, of course. Um, being homosexual and being in Kentucky and uh, all that um, is not the most welcoming place uh, with the most welcoming attitudes. And um, he was extraordinarily impressive, extraordinarily impressive as played by Ken Marks um, in showing this father who had to come to terms with this and eventually became very proud of his son. But even now, uh, as he's doing a monologue, He's struggling with some of the words and avoiding words like gay and avoiding words like homosexual and saying things like that way and uh, and all that goes with that. So um, there are three monologues. That's what they are, each about um, 20, 25 minutes apiece. Uh, we also have the enchanting Laura Esteman uh, in the cast uh, playing um, Catherine Luter, um, who really was very much in love uh, with Dr. John Fryer and um, talked about the frustration of loving a man whom she do couldn't love her back in the conventional sense. So, uh, so this is a worthwhile uh, evening. Uh, it's it's off the beaten track. It's on Thirty Seventh Street between Ninth and Tenth. It's um, in a very strange theater where the seats are like bleachers. Um, they do have backs to them, but um, <laughs> uh, they're, they're not uncomfortable. But I do want to point out that they're not theater seats and they don't have armrests. I, uh, I always think it's important to warn people of the experience they're going to have in that way. And so that applies here. So uh, so it's an odd evening, um, but I'd be surprised if you weren't galvanized by much of what uh, is said on that stage. And in, if you're like me and never heard of this incident – um, to, to find out that somebody actually had to wear a mask mm. because he was so afraid of the ramifications. And that turned out to be so significant because people were saying, gee, you know, should he really have to wear a mask? I mean, isn't it sad that uh, somebody who's being this brave has to wear a mask uh, because he knows his career will be ruined if he doesn't wear a mask? And is this right? Should this happen? Should this be the way it has to be? And it wasn't long thereafter that the uh, American Psychiatric Association changed its mind from saying homosexuality was a mental illness to know it's not. Yes. And uh, certainly have John Fryer to thank for that. So that's why I think this is a significant event. Uh, on their website, 217boxes.com, they talk about this being the uh, 45th anniversary of the declassification of homosexuality as a mental illness. Uh, and uh, the mask that he's wearing it. Have you guys ever heard of the online group called Anonymous? Yes. Uh, no. So uh, Anonymous is a, a, an online organization of uh, of seemingly technology folks around the world that uh, that try to do socially conscious uh, things um, 
that are maybe not legal, but uh, they they talk about it being you know as a uh, a group that stands up for the rest of the world in un- unmasking, if you will, uh, uh, bad people in bad situations. Um, and they their thing is also they they go online and uh, and uh, make announcements using a mask as well. So it's interesting that uh, mm. Henry Anonymous, I wonder if they are familiar yeah. with, with this situation. Yeah. Sure. All right. So, uh, Michael, you got to take a little bit of a cruise. Well, at least you went on a beautiful cruise ship while it's in port <laughs> to see a presentation of Havana at the Nor- on the Norwegian Bliss. So uh, tell us about that. Yes, they. Uh, we didn't. We didn't go anywhere. But it's a beautiful, <laughs> brand new ship, the Norwegian Bliss at Pier eighty eight. Uh, well, that's where it is at the moment uh, before it leaves, and they have a new show, brand new show that is op- that is going to be playing on it. So they gave a preview for the press, and uh, they really put out all the stops because it's called the show is called Havana, and uh, it's set in a. Cuban nightclub, and it is directed and choreographed by Warren Carlyle, um, whom we certainly know from his Broadway work. And he's also currently doing uh, Jerome Robbins' evening for New York City Ballet. So he's really busy. Um, then uh, this uh, show, the design is by the Cuban American couple team of uh, Ruben and Isabel Toledo, who did. After Midnight on Broadway, so you may know their work from that. And it's just gorgeous to look at. Um, chore- choreography is is exceptional. I, I've i loved all of Warren Carlyle's stuff, but I had no way of knowing that he, he apparently uh, has some grounding in, in this type of dance. Uh, the, by the way, it's uh, original songs by the Grammy Award-winning Cuban-American singer Albita. And the uh, just... Really, really well done. So well done in terms of the music, the choreography, and the design. I was a little surprised that there was so much book to the show, uh, and it wasn't very good, frankly. Uh, but they tried to make a uh, it's sort of like a Cuban uh, 42nd Street <laughs> backstage musical thing. But don't go for that. Go for the uh, the costumes and the sets and the choreography and the music. Uh, it's uh, incredible. The the professionalism of these shows on on cruise ships and also the state of the art uh status of the the facilities in terms of sound and lighting and uh they always have wonderful sight lines because uh, the ones i've seen they all tend to be stadium seating basically uh so it, it was it was a wonderful preview of a show that i i'm sure is going to be very very popular with people who sail on norwegian cruise lines so uh, when you when I first heard about this, I was thinking, is this or uh, has uh, Frank Wildhorn's Havana finally gotten off the ground? Ah, <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. He did do a show by that name. You're quite right. Yeah. I uh, forgot that. No, this is not that. This is <laughs> not that. All right. Yeah. So uh, Frank Wildhorn devotees, we still have to wait yet again. All right. Um Perhaps if it does ever come about, we will have some unexpected joy. But Peter, until then, you got to the York Theatre Company to see Unexpected Joy. So tell us about that. 
Uh, Unexpected Joy is a, a country musical in essence because it deals with a, a country singer who um, has been successful with her husband along the way. Unfortunately, he has since died, and now it's time for a memorial concert that they're going to have. And, uh, well, will indeed his daughter participate in this uh, memorial concert uh, because she has always had issues with her mother. In fact, um, because this was a hippy-dippy type of uh, mother, she named the girl Rainbow. Well, indeed, uh, the woman now goes by the name of Rachel. And uh, (laughs) there's certainly uh, a lot of strife between them, and it's going to come up even more during this visit, because what should have been a conciliatory visit is going to be very, very difficult, because uh, the daughter, Rachel... Well, she's married to a televangelist. Um, She's really gone the opposite direction, as many kids will do. And, well, uh, he's really cited a lot of fire and brimstone, and she's picked up on that. And uh, we never really get to know if indeed this is in her soul or if indeed she's adopted it because her husband is in this business and is very successful in this business. And uh, I'm sorry if the word business offends anybody, but uh, we it is established they do extraordinarily well. Uh, indeed, our, uh, it's uh, not the same case as... Um, as Luba Mesa's character, um, so uh, sh- whose name is Joy, by the way. And um, she's, she's had a tough time making ends meet, but um, she's doing what she can. Uh, and she would like to reconcile with her daughter during this time. It's going to be harder because she wants to get married to a woman. And uh, that's obviously abomination to the evangelists. And um, the fact that it's a black woman uh, it could be more fire, fuel for the fire. It isn't, in fact, which is rather refreshing that um, race never seems to be an issue here. And I think that's very, very uh, nice that um, Bill Russell and Janet Hood, who wrote this piece, and Bill Russell, of course, we know from Sideshow, uh, we're past that. And I think it's very, very strong uh, that that is the case, that uh, we don't have to worry about uh, that being the issue. But boy, we're not past the issue of uh, being gay at all, at all, at all, at all. And um, now (laughs) adding to the mix is the fact that Rachel has a daughter named Tamara. And um, she she certainly uh, is a musician as well, even though she's just a kid. She's written a song that's... I I guarantee you if her mother heard would bring her no pleasure whatsoever. But, of course, the difference between a relationship between a mother and daughter and a mother and granddaughter is profound. And so Tamara, the granddaughter, adores her grandmother, which, of course, drives her mother, Rachel, crazy, um, not just for the value system, but uh, it's so much easier to be a grandmother who shows up every now and then and gives a present and uh, thinks you're adorable and my how you've grown as opposed to clean your room and go to bed and do your homework and all that kind of stuff. So so all those issues come to the fore as well. And uh, Tamara, uh, who, by the way, is established late in the game as 18. I didn't think she was remotely that old. But um, 
the character. Uh, I, I, I was surprised that, um, that uh, she was that old. I really thought she was supposed to be substantially younger. None of this is a criticism of Celeste Rose, Rose R-O-S-E, who plays the part magnificently. What a find. Whoa, what a kid. What an extraordinary achievement. Luba Mason, fabulous as joy. Courtney Ballin, it's hard to play a dish rag. It really is. And I mean, that's the type of role this is. Um, uh, Bill Russell and Jen Hood have been careful to bring in her humanity uh, whenever they can. Um, but we know whose side um, we're all on under these circumstances. So, and then there's Lou, uh, the girlfriend, <laughs> played with, uh, well, if not brimstone, certainly fire by Allison K. Daniel. So um, it's a show that really works on its own terms. They've thought of everything. And here's another successful musical from the York Theatre Company, another hit, which I hope goes on to do as well as Desperate Measures apparently is doing. Doing. Uh, we're going to see that opened off Broadway very, very soon. Uh, a terrific little show. And this is a terrific little show as well. So congrats to the York Theatre Company for doing two main stage shows this season that have turned out to be really, really, really wonderful achievements. All right. So that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is iHeartRadio plays us, TuneIn plays us, Stitcher plays us, Google Play plays us, anywhere that you can get finer podcasts. Uh, you can get Broadway Radio podcasts. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me, as well as links to some of the, some of the things we've talked about today can be found at Broadway Radio as well. And uh, so let's get on to trivia. Peter, do you have a answer to last week's trivia? Sure. Uh, the question was, a Pulitzer Prize-winning musical has two songs in a row where different automobiles are mentioned. The first of the two mentions a very high-end model. The second, a far more plebeian vehicle. What's the show, the songs, and the automobiles? I was looking for Fiorello, which has Little Tin Box, a Rolls-Royce is mentioned in that one, and then The Very Next Man, which is the very next song, a Chevrolet is cited. So, Brianna K. Constibla was the first to get it, followed by David Kincannon and Deb Popple. However, David Kincannon, Doug Strassler, Josh Israel, and Colin Walker also noted that in Rent, another Pulitzer Prize winner, a limo is mentioned in Today for You and a Range Rover, and you'll see. Well, yeah, okay, all right, but I did say model, and that suggests the name of a car and not just a generic limo. So we'll give them each an honorable mention, <laughs> for they are all honorable mentions, so uh, we will do that. All right, this week. On a February day in 1952, the owners of a certain London theater knew that they'd have to change the name of their playhouse. What was the reason? What was the name they had to change? What was the new name? Hmm. All right. If you know that, uh, email us at triviaofbroadwayradio.com and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So uh, next week, we will finish up our discussion of the Tony nominations. But until then, on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Majesty, the gloves. 
right now would I make this mistake? How could I let my concentration break? Conceal. Sem Hanheldart, inum hergum from Queen Elsa of Arendelle. Did I really make it through? Father, I did it. Now what do I do? I can't stop smiling. How strange. Does this mean that things are different? Could they really Dangerous to 